This episode of the Sixth Sense Report contains some language, graphic descriptions, and may not be suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Sixth Sense Report. The Sixth Sense Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Man, I, I love it when we got a guest. I love it when we got a return guest. It, it generally means that the com- first one went well enough that they didn't say no. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. This is this is true. Uh, sometimes, yeah, you, you would think that sometimes people would, might get uh, tired of us and not want to come back. But you know, I, I'm glad. I'm glad this guest came back and. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for joining us again, Germinal. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, when what, what was the last episode he was on? Uh, you remember? Oh, it was. Uh, oh, what we titled it? Yeah. I mean, I think I don't know what we titled it. I think we did a bit of a you know eclectic touch, a whole bunch of his books and topics and and whatnot. So uh, I'll, I'll definitely I'll have it in the show notes page. Uh, I definitely wasn't uh, ready for that one, Darnell. But uh, no, um, it's all good. No, it was um, an unequal economy. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Episode one thirty-two. Yes, yes, an that's un- what it was. Un- yeah, I economy. remember it was because of David Card with his Nobel. Yeah, the Nobel Prize. Yeah, in and economics. Minimum wage. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, that was the catalyst for the much uh, overdue conversation. Um. Yeah. Well. You know. Yeah. Definitely. Um. You know, Germinal's work of, and I said before, it's definitely um, thought-provoking, and uh, I, I was, I was. Uh, reading his book, uh, Classical Liberalism in Africa. And, you know, there was, there was a lot of, lot of interesting points that I thought um, related to us where we are as Canadians. Because some people will say, okay, so what's the point? Why, you know, it's not Black History Month. Why are we, <laughs> why, why are we talking about Africa and Black history? Um, but I think, yeah, that's the fact that it's not Black History Month. And these are important conversations to have. And, 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 I was seeing a parallel between the instability in 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 some African countries and some of the political instability we're seeing today in Canada. Uh, so there's there, there's points where we have freedoms in, in Canada in the sense that you know yeah we have Lockean we'll get into that a John Lockean uh, freedoms, um, but and at the same time. Um, our government's going in another direction and we're going away from the freedoms that we have and we're going into more of a Hobbesian, which we'll get into later, um, and Hobbesian idea of, of what, um, politically. And so the point I'm making is that for Canadians listening to the conversation, what does Africa have to do with Canada? And I would say everything because a great economist always asks compared to what, and it's always good to kind of look at some of the trends we're seeing and the political instability in Africa and the political instability that we're seeing here in Canada. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. Um, and, and on that note, uh, you know, when we did our intro to uh, liberalism and fascism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Ger- Germinal shared that episode because I think it, it ties really well into this discourse. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so if you guys haven't checked out um, the episode, uh, fascism and, classical liberalism or liberalism um an introduction check it out just so you can kind of see the more nuances of of the idea of liberalism but without further further ado uh let's just get into the book uh and so the central argument of your book as you stated is that it's based on the assessment that a civil society cannot prosper if it does not operate on promoting the elements of classical liberalism Mm -hmm. so the question is what um, what are the what are the um, principles of classical liberalism that leads to a country prospering for people, who, of course, who don't know? Sure. So the principles are pretty simple and straightforward. First is economic freedom. Second is political freedom, and third is civil freedom. So civil liberty. These are the three main. They are the three main characteristics of classical liberalism. Economic, liberal, uh, economic freedom, so economic liberalism is in fact the cornerstone because it rotates or gravitates around property rights. You know, in the United States, for example, 
when we talk about uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, in fact, we mean the pursuit of property. Property is what defines happiness. Because if you own things, if you own resources, you're free because you can use those resources as you see fit to accumulate more wealth and more prosperity and you can help others with the resources that you have. But if you don't own resources, you're kind of screwed because you have to be working for others all the time. So that's the, the, that's the true meaning of uh, the pursuit of happiness. And this uh, concept basically is widespread because any country that has a market economy operates on that. You cannot have a market economy unless people have access to property. And in Africa, when you look at the countries that prosper during the independence era, those countries were the ones who applied a uh, classical liberal vision or should I say a capitalist vision from the get-go? I cannot say classical liberal in the full meaning of the term because most African countries, when they were independent, I, I would even say all, all of them did not have political freedom, neither civil liberties. They only had economic freedom for those who decide to follow a capitalist roadmap. When I take the, uh, my homeland, for instance, Ivory Coast, Ivory Coast, I'm not even saying that to brag or to be a nationalist, although I'm proud of my homeland. But Ivory Coast is the most advanced French-speaking country in West Africa, by far. It's not, it's not even close. Again, I'm not saying that to brag, but it's for real. <laughs> and the reason why is because in the 1960s, when uh, most African countries gained their independence, they decided to go with the socialists. Ghana with Kwame Nkrumah, for instance, applied a central planning uh, economic system. Same in, in, in Mali, Burkina Faso, Liberia, all around Ivory Coast. Ivory Coast, however, applied a capitalist system. Economically, Ivorians were free. Politically, they were not. And that was pretty much the method of Pinochet, you know, give economic freedom to people, but politically, we don't need a democracy. And that was all over Africa because of the Cold War. No one, there was no democratic process in the when it comes to, to the political system. Mm -hmm. But Ivory Coast prosper. In 1970, we reached our economic miracle. There are many papers that have been written on this called the, the Ivorian miracle, where um, the living standards of Ivorians was much higher than any other living standard of, an Af of another West African country around. Mm -hmm. And many people used to come to Ivory Coast to study, to have a better life. Why? Because instead of trying to redistribute the wealth, we say own things and put those things in value. Show the value of what you own so that if the market likes what you have to offer, people will pay for it. That's why in the market economy, people who are rich are producers, not consumers. <laughs> you don't get rich by consuming. You get rich right. by producing. So, <laughs> yeah. it's, Just don't it's ask so, the government, right? It, it's, it's it's so simple. If you look, it, it's 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 pretty simple. Who are the richest people on earth? None of them is a salaried person. They're all business owners. All of them: right. Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, Bernard Arnault, um, all these Russian oligarchs. All of them are business owners. Right. They do not go to a nine to five. <laughs> and get rich from that no you yeah. can't yeah yeah and yeah and i mean what, technically you're, yeah, even, you're even including the ceos right even those people who make 10 million dollars a year 20 million dollars a year as like a ceo of these large companies they're not in that class of people that you're talking about no they're not because the ceo doesn't own the owner or the founder of the company is the one who gets rich the ceo is just the executive manager of the of the of the organization that's all. So yeah, if you're the CEO of Citibank, good for you. You're making a shit ton of money, but you're no, but you're not close to Warren Buffett, who is the the um, is the owner of a holding company. So the guy can use his company to buy yours. And what are you gonna do? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right? He said, "Oh, you know what? 
I, I, I just want to own your company, and right. I'm offering you like fifty million. What you're gonna turn? You go, you, you, you're gonna turn off those fifty million? Of course not. You'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's back, your savings coming to fruition. Exactly. <laughs> Perfectly said. But to to come to come back to Africa, classical liberalism has never been applied fully. One of the three principles was. The one was the one applied, and it was mainly economic freedom. When you look at Rwanda today, it's amazing how Rwanda prospered economically. Mm-hmm. We all know that Rwanda had the genocide of 1994, people killing each other with machetes. And mm-hmm. after that, what Kagame did was to open Rwanda to the world. Oh, that's the pres- current president, right? At yes. Rwanda. Yes, the, to open Rwanda to the world. So people have access to property. You have the right to own. Rwanda is one of the safest places in Africa to build a business, by far. I was looking at the property rights index, in the, in the International Property Rights Index. Mm-hmm. And Rwanda is, is in the top five of African Really? Countries. Oh, yeah, the, of African countries that have um, highest property rights. Yep. Uh, okay, because... I, I I think that that's a, a good case study because of like you said like like you said the the Rwandan genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis, mm-hmm. and I, you know I, I was reading I was reading the book uh, Shake Hands with the Devil, uh, the failure of humanity in Rwanda, mm-hmm. uh, and it was written by uh, Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire, uh, mm-hmm. who's of the Canadian Forces, uh, mm-hmm. and the yeah like you said the book the book was gory and. It was, I, I think it was like the fastest genocide um, ever. It was like 100 days, 800,000 people killed. And so here you are talking about the prosperity of the country. Like it's like it's a, um, uh, like it's like a, a well-developed country. Mm-hmm. But their history is so gory and bloody. Mm-hmm. Um, that transition. So you're saying that that classical liberalism helped kind of open up the country and has helped restoring it. Absolutely, at least on the economic side, because politically, okay. Kagame is not giving people freedom to vote. But the 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 interesting paradox is that liberal democracy, personally, I do not think is applicable to its full extent in Africa. Okay. Because even if you even look at what Europe Europe has to go through to to have a liberal democracy as we understand it today. Europe is the most bloody continent on earth. <laughs> Europeans have killed themselves for thousands of years. Right. Until yes, they finally point. were able to have a system where people are allowed to express themselves and, uh, you know, vote for who they want. Personally, I'm not a fan of democracy. I'm not. I'm going to explain why. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> no, the reason why is because. I, I I prefer more a uh, aristocratic system, a political system, and the reason why is that. And sorry, sorry, sorry. Define um an aristocratic system. What does that look like? So aristocratic system means ruled by the best. It has okay. its downfall. It has its downside too. It's that sometimes, not even sometimes. The downside of of an aristocratic system is that the people who rule can be detached from reality. That's the, the, the major downfall of it. But the people who rule because they have a better understanding of things, I think they're the ones who are supposed to have the authority to select who will be the leader. And that's mm-hmm. what we used to have in the United States at the time of the founding fathers, technically. If you guys think about it, the United States was a aristocratic republic. Because mm-hmm. people like James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, those guys were educated and they were the one rep- representing their constituency. And sometimes they would go against their constituency if they believe that what the constituency support does not uh, align with the national interest. That's what mm-hmm. an aristocratic uh, republic does. Compared to a democratic republic, you only focus on your constituency. You don't really care about the national interest. Whatever your constituency wants, that's what you do. But in the aristocratic republic, you can go against your constituency if you believe that your constituency is not making the right mm. choice or for mm. the nation. That's why I like aristocratic republics. Mm. 
Right. Would you yeah. agree that it's yeah. it's it's sort of uh, embedding a little more of the meritocracy concept? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I believe that the most and 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 John Stuart Mill talk talk about this book. I highly recommend it. It's called uh, Consideration in Representative Government. Basically, it talks about the structure of a government ruled by the most educated and the best. And I think that's uh, that's how a uh, a society should be ruled, because there are a lot of people who don't know why they vote. They don't. <laughs> Seriously, they don't. Like, no. yeah, I always say we we elect politicians based on like five percent of the budget. Yeah, absolutely. They don't know why they vote for. They just do it because it sounds good. Let me give you a very simple example. When a politician comes and gloats about, uh, or should I say he brags about the redistribution of wealth, everyone wants it. Oh, let's redistribute the wealth. Let's do this. Let's do that. But people never understand the consequences of redistributing the wealth. Why the, why the redistribution of wealth never works? It doesn't work because first, the redistribution of wealth focuses on physical wealth rather than human capital. Mm. And second, the wealth that is being redistributed is given to people who do not have the technical knowledge to maintain the value of that wealth. That's why when you redistribute the wealth from the rich to the poor, the poor mess it up. Let me give you an example. Look at the policies of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. He took the land, he took like basically, he passed the um, Land Acquisition Act in, of 1992, which gave the legal authority to the Zimbabwean government to seize the land from white landowners and give it to black owners. The substance of that decision was purely a matter of social justice without understanding the economic impact that it could have. You took, he took those lands gave it to black uh, far, black Zimbabwean farmers. Cool, you did it. Then what? The problem is that those black Zimbabwean farmers did not have the technical knowledge it requires to maintain the value of that land. Mm-hmm. And that's why the, the agricultural output collapsed significantly right after that, that policy was passed. And then... Mm-hmm. And then we know everything that happened, you know, after in Zimbabwe, you know, the collapse of the public service, uh, unemployment soared, inflation went in the thousand percent. We all know, we all know that, but that's what it is. And I mean, Dada in Uganda did, did the same thing too. He came to power, applied the redistribution of wealth, kicked off the Gujaratis. If you guys are familiar with the Gujaratis, so they're like a group of uh, Indians that basically live in the diaspora and they create businesses wherever they go and they always find a way to prosper. Okay. All right. No, no, they really do. They're really good at this. Okay. And they, they're exactly like the Lebanese. Wherever they go, those guys make sure to create a system. All right. Okay. All right. No, well, I'm, I'm writing this down. We'll go look into it afterwards. Yeah. So in, in Uganda, the Gujaratis created industries that were not even existing in Uganda at the time in the 1970s. So those industries they create contributed to the prosperity of the Ugandan economy. I mean, that mm-hmm. that came and say, oh, I'm good. those guys are the ones taking your jobs. I'm going to kick them out and blah, blah, blah. He kicked them out. Sure, you confiscate the physical wealth, but you did not confiscate the human capital because what they created, they can create that anywhere else. No matter where you put them on earth, mm-hmm. they will reproduce that because human capital is intangible. Physical wealth is tangible. It's finite. He took their, their physical wealth, gave it to the local Ugandans. Then what happened? Those guys they were not able to manage it because they did not have the technical knowledge it requires to manage the value of that wealth that was passed on to them. Now, would you say that there's, is that due to like a fundamental ideological position that like everybody's the same, everybody deserves the same? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's this, um, false belief that equality makes everyone better off that's all it's it, it's false so it, 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 yeah go um, ahead in in like now you know we i think you've laid out an example to some extent where it was purely based on on redistribution of wealth mm-hmm. right so in inequity um the question that comes to my mind is so in a scenario of let's say a past agree uh, you know theft or a past property rights violation that you're trying to make right 50 years later, 
-hmm. how would you postulate a solution? Because what you've just described, well, if we took the land and gave it back to the previous ancestors, Mm -hmm. would that, that, that would actually likely reap negative consequences for society as a whole. Mm -hmm. If, if it was similar to the one you just described. And so how do we, you know, resolve those past grievances or, or what would be a way to do that, but doesn't reap mass destruction? Well, one of the first things that uh, those leaders forget or do not do is to prepare the people that will be, that will be receiving that physical wealth given unto them. How do you prepare them? You educate them. Mm. It's everything is about technical knowledge. Let me give you an example. When I say technical knowledge, I don't mean necessarily intellectual. No, technical knowledge simply means uh, having a specific knowledge about something. You cannot create a business unless you have technical knowledge. Let me give you an example. Sam Walton, the guy who created Walmart. I'm fascinated by this guy because he started from nothing. Abject poverty. This dude was like dead poor, right? Seriously. <laughs> but what? But but what did he do? He didn't create Walmart just like that. He acquired the technical knowledge of the retail industry. In order to develop a business plan, you need to first like select the the industry in which you're going to sell your product or service. You need to know your competition. You have to do a market analysis, right? In order to do that, <laughs> you have to have technical knowledge. If you don't, you are learning in the process. Because if I, I come to you guys and say, hey, hey, guys, I want you to invest in my business. The first thing you're going to say is, let me see your business plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to put your money in something you don't know. Mm-hmm. Let me see your business plan. Who's your, who are your competitors? How, how do you ensure that what you're selling is unique compared to what they're selling? This is technical. And anyone mm-hmm. can, can acquire technical knowledge. It, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. Technical knowledge, it's simply doing a little bit of research. It's simply understanding the mechanism and the parameters of the industry you're in or you want to be in. That's all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you were, the previous episode, Joel and I were talking about a, making a distinction between the economist and the politician. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and you, you said, uh, you were mentioning, uh, economic freedom and political freedom and you're making a distinction between them is there a distinction between economic freedom and political freedom yeah oh yeah because you because you, you, yeah you talked about kagami um yeah the econ- economy in rwanda is looking great mm-hmm. but like but not everybody's allowed to vote and actually it's illegal to talk about ethnicity for fear mm-hmm. of another genocide yeah and but the, the the thing with political freedom is that it's important to understand the context, the historical context. The reason why I am not opposed to Kagame, despite the fact that he's being an authoritarian leader, is because the wounds are still fresh. The wounds, the cultural wounds of the war are still there. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if we let having a democratic process, those things will come back again. Those resentment will resurface mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Like democracy is not; it's something like you. It it's something that can only be done when a society is mature. Yeah, and, and you in know, France, on- took, in in France, it, it took five republics to <laughs> finally have a liberal democracy. Mm. They they first killed the king in 1789 with the French Revolution. And then from the French Revolution until 1956, France had unstable political systems. It wasn't until Charles de Gaulle came and said, okay, we're going to have a constitution that gives absolute power to the president of France. Actually, the French president on paper is the most powerful president in the Western world. Like he has so much power, you guys have no idea. So he was like, let's give power to the president of France and let's develop a system that will facilitate the democratic process. Until then, France, the Fifth Republic, has been the longest republic to ever be implemented uh, since the revolution. It takes time. It's not easy. It's, uh, it's something that if people are not politically mature, 
they cannot have a peaceful democratic process in Rwanda or even or even politically wise i guess and knowledgeable because at the end of your book you talk about the way to undo this is to educate people on on the constitutional government. right yeah 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 absolutely absolutely it's if you can ask any african person what is the first article of the constitution they they don't know dude they don't know but it's not their fault because the gov- the african governments do not take do not make of civic rights a uh, priority. a priority they don't in yeah, but United- we can also make the same argument in Canada, no, Joel? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, what I've been saying during COVID is the, the role of a constitution and the three levels of government, most people have no comprehension of, right? So, like, you're getting into, like, I'll say a little bit more of the specifics. This is, like, the most fundamental aspect of governance and what is the purpose of a constitution? I always say it. It's, the purpose of the Constitution was to restrain the tyranny of kings. And so this is like, I would say, a societal problem, but it's also in the politician's best interest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I would also add, Jermel, uh, you have a really good quote in the book. Mm-hmm. And you say, um, you say, constitutional personality means that a society lives and acts by the principles of its Constitution, uh, the Constitution promulgates. It, sub- it substantiates the attachment that a society has the rules established in the constitution, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you want to expound on that a little bit? Yeah. So basically, what I mean is is that a society prosper when they understand the foundations of the rule of law, and the rule of law is based on the constitution. In African uh, Africans write their text and never respect why, what they're writing. <laughs> we don't, you know, mm-hmm. live by what we write. In the United States, for example, that's why I always take the, the, the example of the U.S., because in the United States, they have a constitutional personality. Yes. In the, in the U.S., people understand their rights. It's something that they're being taught in first grade. Right. It's right. It, and and when you 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 look at the branches of government, the most powerful branch, as a matter of fact, is the judiciary, is the Supreme Court, because mm. the Supreme Court is the one that interprets the constitution, like the law, according to the constitutional principles. Mm-hmm. Is this law aligns with the framework of the constitution, i.e., the highest law of the land? Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, it, what's interesting, Germinal, is that here in Canada, um, ours came into effect in 1982. Mm-hmm. And and even then, um, in light of what's been happening, what happened with uh, the pandemic, uh, there's been, uh, I guess, uh, people are, are, are tr- I guess, I hope not. It sounds like people are rediscovering our constitution and we're also analyzing it. And we do a lot, we do a lot of that on the show. And, and, we have lawyers come on the show um, and, and political theorists, political scientists come on the show, and we talk about our constitution and the weakness of our constitution and how it's not as nuanced and developed as as um, the American constitution is. And and we're 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 reaping the um, the consequences of having a weak constitution now in this country, and and we're starting to see the distinction between us in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and us not understanding like the the um our constitution and and how it dictates the way we're going to act in its sense in a sense like our constitution in its vagueness well yeah so and 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 this is the same problem that we have in africa is that we do not put faith in our institutions because the institutions are the safeguard of the constitutional principles of a society in the United States, again, like the Constitution has been the long, like the everlasting document, written document, because we trust our institutions. In African countries, and this is one of the reasons why political freedom is a problem, is because Africans do not trust their, their institutions. Mm-hmm. They don't believe that political leaders are able 
to work in their in the interest of the people. And it's to to some extent it's understandable why, because there's a lack of rule of law. The people are not held accountable for what they do. So that's why you have many people who get into politics to become rich. That's why there's so much corruption in African politics. So, um, so yeah, because they, because it, if we had a, a, a constitutional personality in African countries or in most African countries, we will have a strong rule of law protected by the institutions of, of our political system. But we don't because we don't trust them. And that's why many African countries have been unstable up to now. Even if you look at Mali and Burkina Faso, in 2022, they had coup d'etat. How can you have a coup d'etat in 2022? Like, this was 20th century stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And today yeah. we still have a coup d'etat. Like, yeah, yeah, it's funny uh, that, that you, that you uh, mentioned um, that because, yeah, definitely I, I'm seeing that in, in, in your work. In, how you mentioned that the African continent has the lowest living standard among all the continents on the planet. Uh, and so historically, um, we've, um, I'm not saying we, but I don't want to speak for everybody, but there's an there's a idea that um, Africa was colonized. Mm-hmm. And so when it was colonized, it was, uh, and when, when, it was left in disarray after uh, the colonizers left. And so um, the imperialism destroyed Africa, essentially. And this is why it's, it's, um, it's a mess politically right now. Would you say, would you, would you agree? That is because of imperialism that Africa is a mess? Yes. Uh, right? In the, sense, in the sense that it left a power vacuum, right? So they come in um, and... And and you have direct rule, indirect rule, um, yeah. And then and then and, and then like for example, bring it back to Rwanda, uh, the Hutus and Tutsis, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. um, the Tutsis are being elevated um, by the Europeans mm-hmm. over um, the Hutus, mm-hmm. right? So the Tutsis are the minority, um, Hutus are the majority, mm-hmm. and the Tutsis, you know, they're they're taller possibly lighter they're treated yeah. differently and now you know the, <laughs> the europeans leave mm-hmm. and now it's just like okay now the minority who was in power has to go against the majority who's kind of left the who have animosity towards the minority tutsi and, mm-hmm. and it kind of leaves a power vacuum would you mm-hmm. would you agree hi i'm darnell samuels you may remember me from such podcasts as Thanks, Coach, and the Sixth Sense Report. When Joel and I are not studying for the next episode, we're paying bills for hosting and production. If you want to help us out, you can make a donation of any amount by clicking the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes. If you broke, don't worry about it. You can subscribe and leave us a review on your podcast catcher. If you did this already, then you can share the show with a friend. Joel, Jeezy, and I appreciate your support. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, there was a, a, a power vacuum. That's why in one of my books well, called um, Income, Inequality and, and Economics, I drew a, a distinction between colonization of power and colonization of uh, colonization of settlement and colonization of exploitation mm. in most african countries we had a colonization of exploitation meaning that the colonizers comes uh basically you know like takes all the physical natural resources that we have you know they, they steal everything and they live without training without training the local population to take over. Mm. But colonization mm. of settlement, like when you look at Southern Africa, like Namibia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Lesotho, all these countries, they had a colonization of settlement, meaning mm. that the, the colonizers brought the customs, the economic, legal, and political system with them, and they established that. 
mm-hmm. as the main system. Now, what is the difference? The difference is that the countries that had a colonization of settlement were were definitely more oppressed than the countries that had a colonization of exploitation. But the paradox, really? yeah. But the parad- when 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 you look at South Africa with the apartheid, they were way more oppressed than people who had colonization of exploitation. But the paradox is that now a country like South Africa has a higher living standard than countries that have colonization of exploitation. Mm. Why is that? Yeah, because those who create the colonization of settlement stay and they implement their system and they, they because they implement their system, they train the local people to accustom themselves to their system. What are the what are countries that had colonization of settlement? Canada, the United States, Brazil, Argentina, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, Namibia. So basically, the Southern African countries. Uh, what else? Um, Australia. Look at all these mm-hmm. countries. All these countries, economically and even politically, are way more advanced. When you look at South America, what are the two most prosperous countries in South America? Brazil, Argentina. Both countries are colonization of settlement. But look at Bolivia or Colombia, colonization of exploitation. Look at the living standard when you compare four countries. Okay, so is it <laughs> is it fair to say that colonization is not a bad thing? And so my question to you... so. My, I, I would, you, I would just add the word here, huh? inherently. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, no, because no, I'm no, I'm serious though. Like, uh, you know, th- 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 there's pros and cons to yeah. colonization. So, so I would ask you, um, what is your view on foreign policy, mm-hmm. um, to Africa? Hmm. So. When you say foreign policy, you mean like because um, like, like I, I guess I guess part of it too is also we should be clear and define our terms because like mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong the the classical liberal view um, is of of foreign policy is uh, non interventionist yeah um but then the book that I'm reading shake hands with the devil mm-hmm. it's saying oh well uh, you know where humanity failed was the UN didn't get involved. Um, and so in light of what you talked about colonization, um, which I would also call imperialism, mm-hmm. um, meaning that, um, one country goes to another country to improve it. Mm-hmm. So, so when, let's say when we take the case of the UN, for instance, the UN has actually done a lot when it comes to providing, uh, humanitarian aids for economic development in African countries. The sum of money that the UN gave every year, in addition to Western countries that gave also their, their, their contributions to African countries, it's because of corruption. Most African leaders, whenever they receive that money, this is their pocket money. They don't allocate the budget as they should do. Why? Because there's no rule of law. There is no um, cour des comptes, like in France, where we, uh, you know, they audit government budget and say, okay, what did you do with that money? How did you allocate it? It's not rigorous. In France or in Western countries, those things, those, those things are for real. Like you're not going to give money to the government and the government going to use that to put in their pocket. I mean, they do it, but they do it slightly. You know, they, they do it under the table, so it's not as blatant like it is in Africa. But, you know, they still get audited. You, they, they, have to, they have to report to a, uh, to a body what, what they did with that money, how they allocated it, and etc. In African countries, they don't. Africa is receiving foreign aid all the time. But the government, the problem is that the government, most African governments do not allocate that budget efficiently. They don't allocate where they're supposed to allocate it. They don't develop the infrastructures they're supposed to develop. That is why you have, you see so many discrepancies in most African countries. Like they develop only the cities, like, or the, the, the main capital. And whenever you leave, you go outside the capital, you feel like, you think like you're in another country. 
although it is the same country, but it is like two different civilizations living, you know, in the same land. Mm -hmm. Compared to uh, most Western countries, they have many cities around. I don't know if you guys have looked at the, the map of the earth at night. When you look at the map of the earth at night, you see like North America and Western Europe. It's bright. There's a lot of lights around. But when you look at the map of Africa at night, you see dots, you know, lights like, hmm. it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like spread around like one here, one here, one there, one there. Mm -hmm. It's not like condensed. Mm -hmm. And this is because uh, infrastructures are not developed throughout the country. But it, we have, but I also have to say that African countries are still young. They're still young. They're only 60 years of, of, of age, you know. If you want to compare the, the scale of nation yeah. to like human scale, like it's kind of been like five or 10 years old. Yeah, actually, I, I have a quote from you. Uh, yeah. You say that the African continent has the lowest living standard among all the continents of um, the planet. Furthermore, according to the Brookings Institute annual report on population growth, 60% of Africa's 1.25 billion people are under the age of 25, which yeah. is the youngest population in the world. Yeah. Uh, the fact that uh, Africa has a population of over a billion inhabitants with its two-third being constituted of the individuals of the age 25 and below indicates that the human capital is not only um, abundant, but it is also young, dynamic, and innovative driven. However, despite this young and booming population, the living standard in Africa remains low. Why? Good question. Why? Oh, is no, it that's your question. <laughs> 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 oh, man. This, this book, like, I wrote this in what? 2020? It's been two years. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what number was this book? Do you remember? In terms of. That was my uh, 13th. Okay. No, no, it was my 12th. My bad. Yeah. It was my 12th book. So, like, 10 books ago. That's a long time. Yeah, 10 <laughs> books ago, yeah. Yeah, 10 books ago. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, you talked about the, the population being really young. Yeah. And the, in the, in, in the capital um, for them. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting because, yeah, you definitely um, nuance. And I think this, this conversation is helpful, again, like bringing it back to for Canadians listening, like what does this have to do with us? And so you have a section and you talk about Thomas Hobbes. Um, mm -hmm. And for the Canadians who are listening, uh, let me know if this sounds familiar to you. All right. Uh, so you say, um, let us remember that the essence of modern African civil society is built upon a Hobbesian social contract in which the sovereign, which in this case is the state, has the ultimate authority to either grant or deprive the citizen of his freedom. Consequently, the nature of African constitutions is inherently coercive. Uh, they are meant to expand the power of the state rather than constraining them like the United States has done so, ha has done so, at least in, in theory. Since African constitutions are inherently Hobbesian, the allowance of political rights in Africa is not a God-given right like it is perceived in the United States or an Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, can you um, elaborate on that and, and the Hobbesian view in Africa? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, I mean... As the text says, there is no amendments in African constitutions. Mm. We only have articles about what the government can do and can't do. But, sorry, what do you mean by amendments? Like when you look at uh, the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. Constitution is divided into two parts. You have the articles, which... Uh, gives the, the, the prerogatives of the federal government. And then the second part are, is the amendments. The amendments are what the government cannot do against people. Mm. So it's basically the part that grants individuals, you know, certain uh, fundamental rights. Or, or restrains government. Yeah, restrains government, absolutely. 
So when you look at the amendments, initially we had in the U.S. we had 10 amendments and then it was expanded to 27, I think. But uh, in African constitutions, we do not have that. We do not build African civil society from the, obs- uh, from the uh, Lockean lens, meaning that, oh, people were are rational beings who already have their property and they see government to protect their property. Mm-hmm. We built uh, uh, we built African civil society from the concept that the uh, the state of nature is brutish. It is um, it is a state of lawlessness, and we need government to set things to set things in order. We need government to come and protect us. Otherwise, it's going to be complete anarchy. We're going to you know kill each other and stuff like that. There is no rules like. I have my property. Who says who it's your property? I take it because I'm stronger than you. So we need government to come and and determine who owns what. That's the option view. But the fundamental principle of the option view is that you give me your right and I secure your freedom. I protect you. Mm -hmm. You, You have to surrender your so-called fundamental right as an individual to me and in exchange i'll make sure that nothing happens to you so that's why in obsian societies it is way easier for government to expand because when the government will expand it it will give a justification such as oh well we do it for for the good of the country and we need to expand so that more people can be protected Look at COVID. COVID is a perfect example of obsian, uh, obsian politics, right? Like because mm-hmm. COVID was a pure test, a demonstration of the obsian theory of the social contract. We 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 gave, we surrendered our individual rights to the government in order for the government to protect us against this virus, which actually failed to do. Because those vaccines didn't work, we saw that. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, as as your paper you published also demonstrates, exactly. So, and but 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 the point being is that COVID was a pure demonstration of obscene politics, and that's how African governments have always been. In Africa, if I go and parrot about Lockean liberalism, people would be like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want, right. <laughs> you, want, you want government to not be in our lives? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> but thank God, though, there's no social welfare in African countries. Can you imagine <laughs> if there was a if there were welfare programs? They don't need oh, them. My God, how people will find ways to justify why they can't work and they need welfare? Oh uh, my but, God! But they, the the politicians don't need those. What's it? The politician don't doesn't need to put those systems in place because, as you've already described, the populace is already dependent upon government. Exactly. Exactly. And and mm. uh, you know, obviously, I'm I, I'm maybe being a little bit, you know, tongue in cheek when I say that because, obviously, some politicians are motivated with let's say pure motives and they want to help people, but those systems become perpetual in nature because they perpetuate the state's power or or influence. Um, I wondered. I, I wanted to make a, a a point about contrasting the constitution stuff with the the UK. Just just for the point that they have a very strong constitutional perspective, without it actually being written down. And and or or that the written document is less of a issue for them, but it's mm-hmm. cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a good point. Or, or sort of a good thing to highlight because we have sort of been talking about writing it down and approach and but it's it's the culture of the people and i mm-hmm. my follow-up question to you sort of has to do with negative rights and positive rights mm-hmm. and would you agree that you know the lockean approach or cultures have a, a much more emphasis oh, on negative rights oh absolutely absolutely and- negative rights it's all about the things that you cannot be deprived of mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's basically things that you cannot negate. So, positive so, rights, it's that. It, it, let, let me elaborate here. 
Yeah. Let's look at the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. The U.S. Constitution was initially, uh, when you look at the amendments part of the Constitution, right? Initially, there were ten amendments. These ten amendments are negative rights. Mm. The mm -hmm. positive rights, those were the ones that came after the Ten Amendments. For instance, the Fourteenth Amendment, which says that the government cannot uh, discriminate against people; they have to recognize everyone as a citizen and stuff like that. These are positive rights. When you look at the Civil Rights Act of 1964, this is a positive right. The thing with positive rights is that these are rights that the government gives you and can and can take away from you at any time. Mm. That's the that's the, the 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 fundamental characteristic of a positive right. Okay. If the government, for instance, decide to to decree that okay, healthcare is a right, this is not natural. It's a positive right. It's not a negative right. It's a positive right. Okay. So uh, so the government said, okay, today healthcare is a right. Everyone has healthcare. And then the day it doesn't work out, oh, you know what? No one has healthcare. We take it away from you. Mm -hmm. so, so, so positive rights are basically the foundation of, uh, of rights in a, in a Hobbesian social structure. Yeah, yeah. So the liberties that people have in the Hobbesian social contract are positive rights. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then, so then can you like quickly expound on, on, for the listener, Lockean, Lockean theory. So, okay, so Lockean theory believes that the fundamental characteristic of individual freedom is the ability to own, is for people to have access to property and to respect that ownership. Mm -hmm. Locke argues that uh, people who work the earth should own it. So basically farmers, because, you know, at this time, agriculture was the main economic, you know, sector for for any society at that time in the 1716 mm -hmm. or 1700s. So people who work the earth, for instance, were the ones who own the land because they're the one producing agricultural commodities. So Locke believed that People need like uh, ownership, property rights was the fundamental characteristic that distinguished people in a society. Because someone, when someone owns something, he's not going to go bother the other person because he's content with what he with, with, with what he owns. That's why Locke, in his state of nature, people were not violent. They, it was not brutish as Hobbes describes. It was not a state of lawlessness. It was a state where people own resources. And what they want is to have a government that will simply be like a uh, guarantor of the resources they own. Basically, if someone tries to take the resources away, they can turn to the government to adjudicate that dispute, that wrongdoing. Like, hey, mm -hmm. uh, these guys came to take my resource unjust unjustly. I want compensation back for for that wrongdoing I've been victim of. And the government mm -hmm. is here to to say, okay, we're going to assist you on that. So basically, the government in a Lockean society is simply a an assistant. Is here to protect what you already have. Is not, not here to grant you things that you will have no that's what is important that that's the thing that is important to understand about Lockean, the Lockean system in the Lockean system you already have things you only use the government to protect the things you have it's like a bank you have money you go to the bank you, you put that money in the bank so that you know you don't have to worry about it you don't have to put your money in your in your in your couch you know underneath your couch <laughs> to, to hide it <laughs> you put, you mm -hmm. put your money in the bank whenever you want to withdraw your money you just call the bank or you go to the bank and you say i want x amount out mm -hmm. so that's mm -hmm. how the, the 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 government in in a lockian uh society civil society works well, but it, it's uh it's it, it's a uh, it's um 
but Locke did not, uh, how can I put it? He did not dismiss the fact that there were some time where the government can become authoritarian in the sense that uh, he, he called that tacit, uh, oh, fuck, there's a word, sorry, guys, I just can't smell that. <laughs> there's a word for that. He said, um, it's not tacit totalitarianism. He said, um, oh, God, it, 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 it will come back to me. But he talked about the government using force tacitly. Right, he okay. was saying that the government is here to protect what you own and everything, but there are some instances where the government will have to use coercion in order to ensure public welfare. He talked about that, and this part was also included in the U.S. Constitution when they talk about the government is here to ensure public welfare, and this is what the liberals in the in the modern sense of the term, in the American sense of the Democrats, that's what they use to justify government expansion. Oh, is the role of the government to protect public welfare, to ensure the public welfare. That's what they use all the time. It's because of that part. So um, maybe this is an oversimplification, but um, would you say that you know the Hobbesian view is basically like the state is the ultimate authority Whereas mm-hmm. the Lockean view is, is some extent, you know, the state is, let's say, a custodian of authority that's beyond them, uh, in a sense. Yeah, technically, yeah, we can put it this way. Yeah, in 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 ob in the Obsian framework, the state is absolute, and Obsian said like the state must have absolute power. Mm. He said it like, oh yeah, Obsian. Theory is the framework of dictatorship, of totalitarianism, technically. And the Lockean view is that the state is a custodian, is an assistant in making sure that whatever you have mm. is already protected. Mm. Okay, good, good. Now, yeah, that, that, that's, that's helpful. Uh, now, slightly changing directions in regards to um, classical liberalism and the idea of the West, quote-unquote. Um, you, you, you have a quote in your book, uh, and it has to do with uh, Pan-Africanist, Pan-Africanism and its rejection of, of, of classical liberal values. Mm-hmm. Um, can you expound on that a bit? Yeah, so in Africa, we associate um, capitalism with imperialism. Mm. So, Pan-Africanists, most Pan-Africanists support socialism. I'm sorry, what's a Pan-Africanist, in case somebody doesn't know? Sure. So, a a, 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 a Pan-Africanist is simply someone who supports any political, economic, and social systems strictly based on African values. So, that's what a Pan-Africanist is. It's the same for a... a, for a Eurocentric, yes, Afrocentric, Eurocentric, yeah, it's kind of yeah. the or, same thing. Yeah, or the word pan, um, the prefix pan meaning all, all African, all African. But it's it, it's 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 nonsense because <laughs> no, it, it is like how how like look how Africa is big. How are you going to unite a a continent of fifty four countries? Thousands of uh, tribes, languages, and and like and religion together under one central government. This is the this is the complete epitome of totalitarianism. Hmm. Pan Africanism to me doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Make, it really doesn't make sense. It's just. It's exactly like the Bolsheviks. Like, they they operate they think exactly like the Bolsheviks like they're the one like people who are, are pan Africanists they're the one for some reason who determine who is true African and who is not like who the hell are you to determine who is African and who is not mm-hmm. like there is mm-hmm. no metric to determine how much you're an African and how much you're not mm-hmm. and 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 the fun fact is that many uh, many pan African uh, pan African leaders married white women. Mm-hmm. You say you're a you you're a Pan Africanist and you go marry a, a, a European woman. 
Mm. Interesting. When you look at, when you look at, for instance, Kwame Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah mar- married a woman from from Egypt. She was white. Really? You guys can Google it. Yeah, you guys can Google it. Yeah, Kwame Nkrumah's wife. Yep. She was white. Yeah, because Kwame Nkrumah, like, uh, yeah, he a uh, lot of people. Well in the circles that I, um, that I was running in, have a high regard for him. Like he's, people see him as, as a great guy. Nah. <laughs> okay. Just, I love All that right. casual, like, nah. Yeah, no. Because, no, okay, because you say this, you say this about, um, uh, you say that uh, the first reason in regards to his rejection um, of, of um, classical liberal values, um, Pan-Africanism rejecting it, See, the first reason is based upon the fact that Africans consider classical liberalism a synthetic, imported Western byproduct. For the majority of Africans, especially the Pan-Africanists, classical liberalism is the ideology and system of the oppressor and white European colonizer who wants to maintain his influence upon the African way of life in order to sustain his order. And then secondly, the majority of African governments rejected classical liberalism because African political leaders argued that is it is an ideology that is simply not simply not conform with African political culture, uh, since African culture values the collective over the individual. Yeah, so um I'm sure you guys heard that phrase. Uh it's hold on, it, it's it's coming to mind. Um, yeah, so Barack Obama and Elizabeth Warren say, uh, UN build that. You guys heard that when they say you did mm-hmm. not build that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. because in America, we tend to say that, oh, success is individual, like it's my own effort, you know, that brought me there. And you have people like Barack Obama who say like, oh, no, like your success, like it's not yours. Like, you know, it's because of a without, set. Without big daddy that. government protecting you, you wouldn't have been able to do it. Exactly. So in, in, that's how we, that's how Af- African culture is. Like we value the collective over the individual. When you succeed, people will tell you that the level you've achieved or you've reached is not based on your soul doing. It's a collective of, or a participation of people contributing to your doings that helped you there so once you become successful you have to give back to those people who helped you that's how african civil society or african culture works but the problem in my opinion with that is that you see a lot of people and when you look at africa today you have many and i even talk about that in the book in the like in the latest uh chapters you have people who a family that has many kids, let's say if between five and eight kids, and within those kids, there is one that is you know standing out. So the the parents do everything to send their kid to Europe or to North America, to, you know, to study or to work or basically to have a better life. Mm-hmm. And once that kid goes to Europe or to North America. Every time he has to send money back. And Hispanic people do that too. Like in, in the US and Canada, you guys surely see like, you know, like Hispanics or blacks that they always go to Western Union to send money back home. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the families back home in Africa never ask the, those questions. Where do you live? How much you make? How much taxes you are paying? Um, <laughs> All these questions, they don't ask that. To them, they see you as an ATM. Mm-hmm. You're there, you have to feed your family, and they will do that. They will use emotional blackmail on you. If mm-hmm. the day you cannot send money back home, they will use that against you to remind you. So this is f- selfish. Because we tend to see African culture as this culture of like collectivism where we share things, where we prone solidarity. But in fact, we do this for the self, for, for selfish reasons. But when you look at, uh, Western European culture, they are individualistic, but they use their individualism to help the group thrive. Why? Because how can you help 
people if you cannot help yourself. Mm. You have to be selfish. You have to be individualistic. Because once you have the resources, now you can use those resources to elevate others. That's what individualism is. Mm -hmm. And people don't understand. They think that it's just you being selfish for the sake of being greedy. That's not true. Individualism is about you being rationally selfish in order to use the resources that you've owned in the process and give it to other people to elevate them too. But in African culture, while you're in the process of making it, they already start asking you to give back. But how can you give back if you don't even own things? <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, got a, I got a couple of thoughts here, and I also want to sort of set up um, for, for the audience. So first thought that I had was, you know, how much of this individualistic versus collective perspective um focuses on the motivations or the or the structure right so there's like this idea that people think oh because socialism is collectivist in nature we're somehow going to have less selfish people or we're going to hinder selfishism or something right um, right and so it's yeah it's an interesting like i just think about how many people have this purely based on you know what are the intentions as opposed to actually wrestling with the question of what system will actually hinder selfish people from succeeding or cause the extremely selfish people to be hindered. Um, and, and rather than just going, well, because the system is designed this way, therefore selfish or, or collectivism is going to rule. Maybe you actually get more collective culture when you have a self-oriented structure. Anyways, park that. Um, I want to transition here. I'm going to tease it out a little bit. We've, Germinal, we've, we've got a new section or a new part of what we do called Extra Change. It'll be on uh, Buy Me a Coffee for, for subscribing listeners at the Six Cents tier. Mm -hmm. I want to tease a question that we're going to transition to, and that is how much, because you've been posting about hood culture on, mm -hmm. your, on your Instagram. I want to draw a parallel with um, you know, the hood culture stuff with what you've said about that collectivism. And I just want to know how much you see parallels or differences. Um, but before we get there, as I said, that'll be in our extra change segment. Can you uh, give the audience uh, a place that if they want to reach out to you, if they want to follow you, what would be the best way to do that? Oh, sure. So I have, so Instagram is definitely my, my most, I mean, the platform I use the most, but I also have my website, which is uh, 3W, germanogvan.com uh, people can shoot me an email there and uh i'm also on facebook but i don't post as much on facebook mm -hmm. uh and i've also have linkedin uh so yeah i'm basically on all and and and, and youtube as well so mm -hmm. i'm also i'm on all social media but oh, all the social media is for everyone above 30 yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> but uh it's but instagram is definitely the platform i'm i'm on the most yeah, okay. that's where i'm the most accessible awesome so um thank you and uh for the audience who wants to follow the rest of the conversation jump on uh, buy me a coffee but you heard me does that make sense madden and mitchell media 